Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, holy chevra. Thank you so much for being here. We know we, know we have uh, many other friends joining us soon, trickling in, but we're so glad and thankful to all of you who showed up on time. We are in for a big treat today. Big treat. Big treat. Professor Christine Hayes is not a uh, stranger to our, our Beit Midrash. Um, thrilled to have had her out here in the past, learning with us at BBM and um, with an interview and a class and podcast and video. And I am a big fan uh, and grateful for this opportunity to learn together how to answer a fool. I bet you never went to a class with that title before. How to answer a fool. <laughs> it's, um, there's a lot to talk about. We're going to have about 45 minutes of presentation, and then we'll have a chance for about 15, 20. She's even given a little wiggle room there for some questions and engagement around this. So hope you, hopefully you're ready to learn Talmud. And there's a, a, to have Professor Hayes' head in the middle of the Talmud in her background is just amazing. It's just amazing. So if you're not familiar with our great scholar today, Christine Hayes is the Sterling Professor of Religious Studies at Yale University, where she specializes in Talmudic literature and rabbinic Judaism. She's also a senior faculty member at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Professor Hayes, we are thrilled you're here. Thank you for making time with us, and I pass it over to you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Shmuley, for this invitation, and thanks to everyone for showing up. Um, and also thanks to Pam, who's just handled all of the logistic aspects well. Let me just do a mic check and make sure that everyone can hear me just fine. Great. So we're going to get started. And um, I will be sharing my screen from time to time through this, um, through this lecture. So let me just get that set up right now, because I do want to start with a shared screen. Uh, and let me collapse that. So I want to make sure on the visual too. Everybody okay? That, that works well. All right. So the book of Proverbs or Michelet gives us contradictory advice on how to deal with a fool. So in chapter 26, verse four, we read, answer not a fool according to their folly, lest you be also like them. And the very next verse, answer a fool according to their folly, lest they be wise in their own eyes. So verse four tells us not to answer a fool, and the very next verse tells us to answer a fool, should we answer those we deem to be fools? Do we owe them the civility of engagement? One verse says no and the other says yes. And since these contradictory pieces of advice appear side by side, I think we have to assume that their juxtaposition is deliberate. Is deliberate. They don't cancel each other out. I think we have to assume that each is good advice in a particular situation. Just like the contradictory proverbs in English, look before you leap and he who hesitates is lost. Both good advice, but in different situations. So in any given moment, how do I know which situation I'm in? Well, perhaps one verse represents the general rule and the other is the exception. Well, we can find out by asking whether one approach is more prevalent in Proverbs than the other. And indeed, when we survey Proverbs general um, recommendations regarding fools, we see that there is a marked intolerance for fools. For starters, Proverbs, like other biblical texts, attributes negative attributes to the fool. The first negative attribute of a fool in Proverbs and Psalms and elsewhere in the Bible 
is wickedness, especially sexual obscenity or wickedness or, or um, uh, depra depravity, zima, asot zima is, is what a fool is known for. The second negative attribute is ignorance. In fact, the fool is said to despise wisdom in Proverbs 1, verse 7, chokma umusar bazu, and to hate knowledge, ksilim yisna uda'at, right? The fools hate uh, knowledge. So Proverbs describes the fool as wicked or ignorant, but either way, they go on to say, the fool is someone who doesn't accept correction from those who are older and wiser. They think they are right. That the path of the fool is, is right in his eyes. And Proverbs, in keeping with this pessimism about the fool, says that since a fool can't be corrected, right, they're incorrigible, they must simply be stopped. And our only resort is the rod. So Proverbs 19.29 says, punishments are in store for scoffers and blows for the backs of fools. So do not answer um, the fool and answer the fool. Now the chapter um, that contains our particular verse in Proverbs 26 confirms this view of the fool that I've just described. So the chapter itself begins as snow in summer and as rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting a fool. Well, now in rabbinic thought, kavod, honor, is essentially linked to the idea of human dignity. The idea that all human persons have a certain guaranteed and inalienable immunity from abuse. It's linked to the idea that people must not be degraded or humiliated or physically abused. Proverbs 26.1 suggests that the fool forfeits his kvod, his human dignity, and presumably forfeits the, hum the immunity to abuse that all humans bear innately. In fact, his very humanity is in question. And two verses later, in verse three here, he's grouped with animals who are not protected from abuse, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, a rod for the back of fools. The chapter continues in this vein, and it concludes, in verses 10, a master performs all things, but the one who stops a fool is as one that stops a flood, something very destructive. Verse 11, as a dog that returns to its vomit, so is a fool who repeats their folly. Have you a person wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for them. So the worst of the fools, right, is someone who thinks they're wise. A fool must be stopped because he can't be corrected and will just return to his folly. And the only one worse off than the fool is the fool who's so far gone that he thinks he's wise in his own eyes. So this very quick survey has told us what Proverbs thinks of fools, right? Wicked, ignorant, and incorrigible. Um, so let's go back now to our contradictory verses right in the heart of Proverbs 26, verse four and verse five, and try to make sense of them. What's immediately apparent is that one of these verses is completely consistent with the general tenor of Proverbs, and the other one stands out as utterly unique. Verse 4, which says, don't answer a fool, is consistent with the general view in Proverbs, Psalms, and elsewhere in the Bible, that fools are wicked or they're ignorant, but either way, they are incorrigible. And talking to them is useless. They will spurn wisdom. Don't dignify them by speaking to them. In fact, show them the back of your hand. That's all they deserve. And that means that verse five is a complete anomaly. It's a radical surprise. It doesn't just contradict the verse that comes immediately before it. It breaks with the entire rest of the book of Proverbs as I've tried to just argue. 
Because verse five says, no, go ahead, answer a fool, engage the fool, speak to the fool. But why this voice of dissent? And do the verses themselves hold any clues as to when one should not engage a fool and when one should answer or engage a fool? Well, um, let's take a look at those verses a bit more closely. Verse four, do not answer a fool, um, lest you become like him. So there's a clue here. Don't answer a fool if the only change it will bring about is a negative change in you, making you uh, like him, no better than him. And how do you become his equal? By answering him? Well, the other phrase in this verse might shed light on that question. According to their folly, right? The underlined phrase, ivato. The verse doesn't say, answer not a fool, lest you also be like them. The verse says, answer not a fool, according to this folly, according to their own or according to his folly. This brings to mind the civility debate that's been raging for some time in this country. Several years ago, you may remember that Michelle Obama was applauded when she said, when they go low, we go high, right? Others clamored for a very different approach. They said, no, you need to fight fire with fire. Proverbs 26.4 is, um, is the Michelle uh, Obama verse. Don't answer the uncivil and foul-mouthed opponent according to his incivility and foolness and foolish foulness, lest you become like him, an uncivil fool, right? So do not, do not descend to that depth. So if answering won't change your opponent, and moreover, if it will only change you for the worse, making you his equal in folly, then don't engage. Don't get swept up in the exchange of incivilities. Well, what about verse five then? Here too, when deciding whether to answer a fool, you should be guided by the outcome. You should answer a fool, lest they be wise in their own eyes, lest he thinks himself wise. And as verse 12 of this same chapter tells us, that was on the preceding slide, the one thing worse than a fool is a person who's wise in their own eyes, because a fool certain of their truth is really too far gone. So verse 5 says, answer a fool if in so doing you can educate him to his folly and rescue him from the even worse fate of thinking he's wise when he's not. If, in other words, if there is a hope and a chance of correction and change. Verse five then is a small beacon of hope in what is otherwise a very harsh and pessimistic view of the fool who should not be answered or engaged with it all. But there's one last oddity about verse five. The verse says, answer the fool so that he'll see he's mistaken, right? and do so according to their folly? What can this possibly mean? How will answering the fool according to their folly in the manner of his folly educate him to his foolishness? It's a bit of a puzzle. And later interpreters of this text struggled to understand what it might mean to answer the fool according to his folly, uh, lest he be wise in his own eyes. But before we turn to the innovations and the nuances of the rabbinic sources that will occupy us for the rest of the time, I just want to sum up where we are. Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, like much of the Bible as a whole, holds up very little hope for the fool. The fool is characterized as wicked. The fool is characterized as ignorant and spurning any kind of instruction. And either way, incorrigible, refusing correction. 
For that reason, engaging the fool is useless. It will change nothing. Engaging them on their own uncivil terms is even worse since not only does it not change them, it sullies and debases you. That's what verse four means. Answer not a fool according to their folly, lest you also be like them. However, ignoring them is not really possible because they're dangerous. So our options are coercion and punishment. Use the rod, beat them like the donkey or uh, that we saw in the previous slide. You reach for the rod because the fool, like an animal, is afforded no dignity and has no claim to civility. And in stark contrast to that general position, that general view, is this one verse, Proverbs 26, verse 5. Clinging to the hope that the fool may be corrigible, correctable. Verse 5 urges us, answer the fool. Engage the fool so that he will not believe that he's a wise man when he's not. Show him where he's wrong. But how exactly? The verse says, according to his folly. That's a puzzle. How can answering him according to his folly help him see he's not as wise as he believes? Well, the Talmudic rabbis also tried to make sense of these contradictory verses by applying them to different situations. Um, and so we're turning now to what's text two. If, if you printed out the sources that were sent in advance, this is now text two. And this is gonna occupy us for most of the time. We're gonna glance at some other texts, but it's one giant long passage that we're gonna analyze. Um, and it's uh, from the Babylonian Talmud. Um, it's Bavli um, Shabbat. But um, in this, the rabbis are going to take um, three different approaches to understanding um, the fool. Let's first, actually, I want to go to that first part of that text. Um, oops. Okay. I think, I'm, I think I have missed a, a slide. I'm sorry. The first part of the text says this. They, the sages sought to suppress the book of Proverbs as well as Ecclesiastes because its statements were self-contradictory, um, just as we see here. And why did they not suppress it? Well, they said, look, in the, book, in the case of the book of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, didn't we examine it and find an explanation for the contradictions? Here too, in the case of Michelet, in the case of Proverbs, let's examine it. How are its statements self-contradictory? Well, it's written, Answer not a fool according to their folly, lest you also be like them in verse four. And on the other hand, it is written, answer a fool according to their folly, lest they be wise in their own eyes in verse five. The rabbis resolve it. They say there's no difficulty for one refers to matters of Torah. Answer them when they're it's a matter of Torah. The other, do not answer them, refers to ordinary matters. So in this first attempt to explain the contradiction, the rabbis explain that the verses are referring to two different, two different situations based on the topic under discussion. One should always answer a fool on matters of Torah, but not on ordinary matters. Another way to state this principle is that you must respond to the fool when important matters are at stake. For the rabbis, those are matters of Torah. So we seem to have a general principle set out right at the beginning of this long passage. Answer when it's a matter of Torah. But um, what follows this general principle is a series of stories with actual examples of encounters with various fools. And we see from these stories that the rabbi's approach is much more complicated and nuanced than that general principle would suggest. In fact, it turns out that it's not true that the rabbis engage the fool only in Torah matters. Now, as we move through the examples, which are going to follow in this long passage um, in the sugya, we're going to see three different approaches to the ethics of engagement with a fool. And this is where I need this slide. The first is a consequentialist approach, which considers the potentially harmful consequences of the fool's words when deciding whether or not to engage. 
In this approach, the consequences of not stopping the fool play a role in determining whether and how to engage. Now, the second approach of whether or not you should answer a fool uh, will be a duty-oriented approach, which is to say um, an approach which considers whether we have a duty to respond because it's a matter of Torah. Remember the general principle at the beginning of the passage, answer the fool when it's a matter of Torah, don't answer them when it's not. Um, but then also um, we will look at other, uh, another approach, we'll see another approach in these stories, and that is the virtue-oriented approach, which considers what a good or virtuous person would do when confronted with a fool. So let's look now at these examples, and they follow in this sequence in this long passage. So the first story, the story that immediately follows the declaration that you only answer a fool when it's a matter of Torah, this story is as follows, and you can find this on your handout number two. As in the case of a certain man who came before Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda in the sea, the Rabbi Yehuda the prince, and said to him, your wife is my wife and your children are my children. Rabbi Yehuda said to him, would you like to drink a cup of wine? He drank and burst and died. Similarly, a certain man came before Rabbi Hia and said to him, your mother is my wife and you are my son. He said to him, would you like to drink a cup of wine? He drank and burst and died. Rabbi Chia said, Rabbi's or Rabbi's prayer that his children will not be rendered illegitimate was effective for him. As when um, Rabbi would pray, he said after his prayer, may it be your will, O Lord, my God, that you will deliver me today from impudent people and from insolence. Okay. Now these first cases um, in our Soya, these first two cases are cases involving slander. Um, where a man says of Rabbi Huda Nasi that he himself is the true father of Rabbi Huda's children. Slandering Rabbi Huda's wife as an adulteress and Rabbi Huda's children as mamzerim, as illegitimate. And these are not insignificant charges, right? The children, this affects their ability to marry, for example. Similarly, a man says of Rabbi Chia that he himself is Rabbi Chia's true father, slandering Rabbi Chia's mother as an adulteress and Rabbi Chia as a mamzer. These slanderers are described in the text as ma'azepanim, they're bold-faced, they're insolent. Now the calculus of the rabbis is this. Rabbi Huda does not owe the slanderer a response, it's not a matter of Torah, but because the slander has crossed a line and landed an attack that can have devastating consequences for the identity of the rabbi and the moral and legal status of his wife and the marriage rights of his children, he also is not to be ignored. He must be stopped. And so each of the slanderers is offered, I guess, the equivalent of a Molotov cocktail. I can't think of it any other way. And, and drinks it and bursts and dies. So these first two cases really follow Proverbs in providing a very simple, unnuanced lesson in how to stop a fool. The assumption is he's wicked, he's bent on harm, he's incorrigible, and he strikes at your core identity and you do not need to tolerate this harm. In fact, you must stop it. I think to understand what's being expressed in this story, I wanna take a very brief um, detour to consider a line of thought that has surfaced in recent years as people consider the limits of speech and the limits of free speech, especially when people interpret the First Amendment um, guarantees about free speech as demanding tolerance for hateful ideologies and especially when you yourself might be the target of that hateful speech or ideology. In other words, it's all well and good for a non-Mexican American to say, 
that if someone labels Mexican as Mexicans as rapists, well, that's hateful speech, but it must be tolerated in the name of free speech. But can we honestly expect a Mexican American to adopt this posture? Do we expect the capacity to tolerate hate speech to be the same for the targets of that speech and for bystanders? Or is it legitimate for differently situated people to respond differently, to play different roles, depending on the extent to which the fool's words touch their core identity and harm them? We've often heard that free speech has a price. We have to sacrifice a little of our comfort and safety and allow things to be said that make us very uncomfortable. And perhaps that's true, but I think we have to consider this as well. The price of the free and unchecked speech of the slanderer uh, in our rabbinic stories, um, like the price of the free and unchecked speech of the white nationalist or the neo-Nazi or the homophobe or the misogynist in our own day is very rarely paid by the speaker. It's paid by the targets of their speech. It's paid by those who haven't generated the speech but who are harmed and victimized by the speech and are the target of the violence it incites. When an absolutist commitment to free speech allows people, especially people in positions of power, to call Muslims animals or asylum seekers criminals or peaceful protesters violent insurgents, who pays the price? Not the powerful leader who uttered the words. It's the Muslim child who's bullied at school. It's the unarmed protester who's run down by a car. The price of the fool's hateful words are paid not, is paid not by the fool, but by people who have done nothing wrong and said nothing hateful. And is that a price anyone has the right to impose on another in the name of their own freedom to speak? Does such speech and do such speakers deserve the courtesy of tolerance from everyone, even their victims? Something to think about. And I wanted to share a quote. Uh, from someone, a man named Devante Torrientes, which I think illustrates this point. He says, it's time for us to do away with the idea that we must be respectful or courteous to be entitled to our rights. Politeness isn't a requirement when we are confronting anyone who uses their political and social power to further disenfranchise us. In this age of entitlement by those with problematic or seemingly unpopular views, remember this, I don't owe you my tolerance, especially not when my life is at stake. He's saying that hateful speech and intolerant ideas, especially issuing from persons in a position of privilege and power, exact a price on me, on my body, on my life, he's saying, and that's not a price I'm prepared to pay. He says, I've been made uncomfortable for too long so that you can speak freely. But the words and ideas that threaten me and my body and my life, words and ideas that you've told me I have to tolerate so that you can have freedom, they don't deserve my courteous respect. They deserve my outrage so that you, the speaker, you are the one made uncomfortable by your words, not me. You should be the one to pay the price for your hateful words and speech, not me. There's a certain logic to that. We can disagree and you can even say terrible things as long as you and not some innocent bystander are willing to bear the cost and the suffering and the pain and the price of having that freedom. I've always been struck by the wisdom of the following passage in the Mishnah. Um, it's a legal passage and I included it in your sources as source number three. So if you wanted to look down at the text at the bottom of the long passage. This legal text says, a man who says to a woman, I betroth you. And she says, you did not betroth me. 
He is forbidden to her relatives and she is permitted to his relatives. I'll explain that in a minute. If she says, you betrothed me, and he says, I did not betroth you, he is permitted to her relatives and she is forbidden to his relatives. Now, this isn't a case of slander or hate speech, but it is a case where two parties give conflicting accounts of a legal event of betrothal that has very serious real world consequences. Perhaps each person believes that they are right. Perhaps one party is lying. It actually doesn't matter. The Mishnah doesn't tell us. We don't actually have to know in order to be able to move forward with a solution. The principle invoked here is that each person's view, each person bears the legal consequences of his or her statement or claim. Neither party has to tolerate or bear the negative legal consequences of the other person's statement. So if the man claims he's betrothed, well, he bears the consequences of that claim. He's forbidden to marry any of the woman's relatives. But the woman doesn't have to bear the consequences of his claim if she doesn't believe it, and she's permitted to marry his relatives. If the woman claims that she's betrothed, then she bears the consequences of that claim. She's forbidden in marriage to the man's relatives, but the man doesn't bear any consequence, and he's permitted to marry her relatives. So each is believed, but only insofar as their claim pertains to themselves and not to the extent that it forces some consequence or cost or restriction on the other. I think the rabbis would agree with James Baldwin. I put a quote by him at the bottom of this slide. We can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity and right to exist. Similarly with hate speech. I think that the metaphorical point of the story of the two rabbis of Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Chia, quite apart from the exploding drinks, I think the metaphorical point is that the wicked and foolish slanderers and not their victims must be stopped and they should be the ones to bear the cost or the consequences, to feel the consequences of the hateful, harmful words and not their innocent targets. On the other hand, we have a parallel story in a different part of the Talmud that resolves really the same situation, but in a very different way. Um, it's a comical story in which a Roman noblewoman casts aspersions on the legitimacy of the children of two rabbis, Rabbi Ishmael by Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Elazar by Rabbi Shimon. But here the offending matron is not given a Molotov cocktail to drink. Um, indeed, the two rabbis answer the matron in a civil manner, which causes the, the Talmud, the anonymous voice of the Talmud, to ask, why do they answer her, right? Doesn't Proverbs say, don't answer a fool? So here's the story. Um, this is also at the bottom of your handout. Um, it's the last text included there, text four. Um, and we have a nice graphic picture of these two rabbis. Um, when Rabbi Ishmael, uh, son of Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, met, one could pass under them with a yoke of oxen. So you see here an ox passing beneath these two um, and not touch them. That's how huge their abdomens were. Um, it was so big that when they stood confronting one another, it was an enormous space. That's how fat they were. A certain Roman, Roman noblewoman once said to them, your children are not your children, meaning due to your obesity, it's impossible that you could have engaged in intercourse with your wives. So based on empirical observation, this woman draws what is in her view, a perfectly reasonable conclusion. These rabbis have such enormous bellies that when they stand belly to belly, 
you know, a pair of oxen can pass under them without touching them. So how could they engage in intercourse? This seems incredible. Their abdomens are so large, they can't possibly achieve this. Um, and so she concludes mistakenly, but not necessarily viciously, your children are not your own. And then what follows are a series of comic misunderstandings. The rabbis reply, theirs, meaning our wives, are larger than ours. The rabbis somewhat vainly imagine that the noble woman is admiring their large genitals and that she assumes they are too large for intercourse. And so the rabbis assure her, no, 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 our wives are larger than ours, meaning our wives' private organs are large and can accommodate ours. Now it's the noble woman's turn to misunderstand. She thinks the response means that the wives have equally large abdomens, which would only confirm her conclusion. Well, if your wives have such large bellies as yours, then she said to them, all the more so what I said is true. All the more so is it impossible for you to be intimate if you both have such large bellies. The rabbis, I think, finally get what's going on and they respond that they are capable of sexual intimacy. They give a couple of reasons, either because um, their genitals are just as big as their abdomens or because love compresses the flesh, making intercourse possible. Um, the response is not gonna detain us now. But what is going to draw our attention is the last paragraph when the Talmud reflects on this story and says, why did they respond to her at all? Isn't it written? Answer not a fool according to their folly, lest you also be like them, as we saw, Proverbs 26, 4. The answer that the Talmud gives is, they answered her so that no aspersions would be cast on the lineage of their children because of the potential harmful consequences, in other words. How does this case differ from the one in Tractate Shabbat? Why didn't they stop her violently um, like the slanderers in the other case? Well, first, the noble woman doesn't seem to be motivated by a desire to slander the rabbi. She's not wicked. She's just mistaken. She's making what she believes is a reasonable observation. As in the previous stories with the two rabbis, the words of the noble woman would have devastating consequences for the identity of the rabbis and the moral stature of their, their wives and the marriage rights of their children. So her words can't be ignored and she must be stopped. But because her words stem from ignorance and not wickedness, and because she's not incorrigible, she doesn't despise instruction, she can be corrected. And perhaps too, because she occupies a position of social power, she's a noble woman, and so perhaps they have to tread lightly. Then even though it's not a matter of Torah, the rabbis answer this fool, they educate her and resolve the danger. In all of these three cases we've looked at, the approach taken when deciding between Proverbs 26, verse four and verse five, don't answer the fool or do answer the fool. Um, the approach in deciding uh, whether or not to answer is consequentialist. When and how we respond to the fool is determined by the potential harmful consequences. These stories suggest that in the case of the incorrigible fool, the harmful consequences of his words and actions dictate disengagement and possibly even some action to deflect the harm from the innocent victims. So the speaker is the one to pay the price for their words. But in the case of the fool who is merely ignorant, engagement that corrects that ignorance presents itself as an option, even though it's not words of Torah, which is what the rabbis established as the general principle. The second approach to encountering a fool appears in the Sugya's very next story, the very next story in the Talmudic passage. This is the duty-oriented approach. In the story um, involving um, Rabbi Gamliel, engagement is determined not by considering the consequences, but because it's quite simply a duty. 
The story has three scenes involving Robin Gamliel, and they all follow the same pattern. Robin Gamliel will give an exposition of a scriptural verse, and a certain student will object to it. And all three um, of these interpretations, all three of these case stories involve a matter of Torah, specifically Torah interpretation. So according to the general principle that we saw at the beginning of the discussion, in matters of Torah, one should answer the fool, the rabbi said. So instead of rebuking or silencing the student, Reverend Gamaliel takes the time to demonstrate his error. We see that in the first passage. Here, the, that's the story. They've just said that you answer a fool uh, when it's matters of Torah. So matters of Torah, give me ex an example. What is that? Well, as in the case of Reverend Gamaliel, who sat and expounded a verse, in the future, women will give birth every day, as it says, the woman with child and her that gives birth together. So he's doing a, a creative interpretation and applying the together um, to both of the women. A certain st student scoffed at him and said, there's nothing new under the sun, right? The, the way women give birth is not going to suddenly change. Raman Gamaliel said to him, come and I will show you an example of this in this world. He took him outside and showed him a chicken that lays eggs every day. The story seems simple enough. The ignorant student is the fool, right? For for um, scoffing at the teaching of the wise Rabban Gamliel. And since Rabban Gamliel is discussing Torah, he has a duty to respond, lest the student become wise in his own eyes. But here's the thing. The student isn't the one who appears foolish in this story. Rabban Gamliel is the one who appears foolish. Rabban Gamliel interprets the verse and goes on to interpret two other verses in ways that are not only implausible, but totally impossible. He interprets a verse in Jeremiah to mean that women will give birth every day, as we've seen, but he also interprets a verse in Ezekiel to mean that trees will produce fruits every day, and a verse in Psalms to mean that the land will produce cakes and fine wool garments every day. And each time the student laughs because these things are impossible and cites the same verse in Kohelet, which says there's nothing new under the sun. The world is not going to change its natural order. Why does the storyteller put such foolish sounding words in the mouth of the rabbi? so that the scoffing student appears to the reader to be the sensible one. I think the storyteller is trying to tell us not to be too confident in our ability to determine who is wise and who is a fool. And if I can't be completely sure who is a fool and who is not, then perhaps I owe the duty of a response, a civil and informative response to everyone. I might learn that someone I thought was a fool was wise. The third approach to encounters with fools is a virtue-oriented approach as may be seen in the very next story in our Talmudic passage. It's a story involving Hillel. And in this story, Hillel will answer a fool, a particularly provoking fool, um, though he has no duty to do so because the topic is not Torah. First, the story. So continuing in text two on your handout. Our rabbis taught. A person should always be patient, unbatan, humble, patient, like Hillel, and not impatient like Shammai. It once happened that two men made a wager with each other, saying, he who goes and makes Hillel angry shall receive 400 zoos. One said, I will go and incense him. That day was the Sabbath eve, and Hillel was washing his head. He went, passed by the door of Hillel's house, and called out, is Hillel here? Is Hillel here? Thereupon Hillel robed and went out to him, saying, my son, what do you require? I have a question to ask, he said. Ask, my son, Hillel prompted. Thereupon he asked, why are the heads of the Babylonians round? My son, you have asked a great question, replied Hillel, because they have no skilled midwives. He departed, the, the, the man uh, who was asking the question. He tarried a while. He returned and he called out again, 
Is Hillel here? Is Hillel here? He robed and went out to him, saying, my son, what do you require? I have a question to ask, he said. Ask, my son, he prompted. He asked, why are the feet of the Africans wide? My son, you have asked a great question, he said, because they live in watery marshes. I have many questions to ask, he said, but fear that you may become angry. Oh, I'm sorry, I think we missed one. We missed our bleary-eyed Palmyrans, didn't we? So he first comes out and he asks about the eyes of the Palmyrians. Why are they bleared? And he says, you've asked a great question because they lived in sandy places. And then he asks his third question and he says, I have many questions to ask. He says, I'm afraid you'll be angry. And thereupon Hillel robed and sat before him and said, ask all the questions you have to ask. Are you the Hillel who is called the Nasi of Israel? Yes, he replied. Well, if that's you, he retorted, may there not be many like you in Israel. Why, my son, he asked. Because I have lost 400 zoos through you, he complained. Oh, be careful, Hillel answered. Hillel is worth it that you should lose 400 zoos and yet another 400 zoos through him. Hillel shall not use, lose his temper. So these two men make a bet. For 400 zoos, says one man, he'll provoke the usually patient Hillel to anger. So he goes to Hillel at the most inopportune time. He's preparing for the Sabbath. He's undressed. He's washing his head. And the man calls out and Hillel comes and puts on his robe and is greeted by this silly question of no particular importance or urgency. Why are the heads of Babylonians round? In fact, the question may be a dig at Hillel because he immigrated to the land of Israel from um, Babylonia. So maybe it's even a dig. But how does Hillel respond? Not only is he not irritated, but he actually compliments the question, right? You've asked a great question, an important question. And he answers the man and goes back inside. And this happens three times, each time a little closer to the beginning of Shabbat, each time a silly question of no particular importance or urgency. And each time Hillel compliments the question, he answers him. The man realizes that he's lost the bet and Hillel is not going to lose his patience or his civility. And in fact, perhaps civility really is nothing more than patience. Hillel remains respectful in the face of the man's deliberately provocative and inconvenient behavior. And it takes the wind out of the man's sails. There's no point. He was only in it for the provocation. And if he's unable to provoke, well, then he gives up the game. But why does Hillel answer him at all and with such civility? These aren't genuine questions asked by an ignorant man seeking knowledge. These are the deliberate provo provocations of a troll, we might say today, a mischief maker who simply wants to harass, and they don't concern matters of Torah. So by the rabbi's own general principle, which we saw at the beginning, you only have to answer a fool when it's a matter of Torah, Hillel had no obligation, no duty to answer. Why then does he answer? Not because it's a duty to answer, but because it's a virtue to answer and to answer civilly. A virtue is an intrinsic good performed for its own sake, not in view of the potential consequences, not out of a sense of duty, but because it is a good. So our first set of stories exemplified the consequentialist approach, right? You have rabbis who encountered fools and determined whether and how to engage them based on the potential harmful consequences and the relative incorrigibility of the fool. In our second set, Rabban Gamliel exemplified a duty-oriented ethics. It's a matter of Torah. He answered the fool because he had a duty to do so. And sometimes you find out the person you think is a fool is not a fool, right? But here Hillel exemplifies a virtue-oriented ethics. He answered the fool not out of concern for the consequences. Indeed, the fool's questions are of zero importance and nothing is at stake. He answers the fool not out of a sense of duty. Indeed, there is no duty in a non-Torah case. 
He answers the fool because it's an intrinsic good, a virtue. And Hillel is a man who chooses virtue. He answers the fool in a way that doesn't make him the equal of the fool. On the contrary, his civility establishes his virtue. So we've seen a variety of approaches uh, in a variety of situations. So what is each of us to do in any given situation? Well, that depends on a couple of things. It depends on the fool, but also you and your personal capacities and vulnerabilities. And I wanna explore those ideas in the very next part of the Talmudic discussion. And this is a very well-known passage, but we're gonna be looking at it with some different questions in mind. Here we see that different people will assess the encounter with the fool differently and they'll respond according to their personal capacities for better or for worse. And it's from this passage that we might finally gain insight into what it means to answer the fool ke'ivalto according to his folly, what that might actually mean. So it's a very famous passage. And in this passage, you have three non-Jews who come before Shammai and um, one after the other, and they ask to be converted, but on a particular condition that on the face of it is foolish. Um, yeah, so we'll begin. This is the next part of the text, um, text two. Our rabbis taught, a certain non-Jew came before Shammai and asked him, how many Torahs do you have? Two, he replied, the written Torah and the oral Torah. Well, I believe you with respect to the written, but not with respect to the oral Torah. So make me a convert on condition that you teach me the written Torah only. But he scolded him and repulsed him in anger. And then he went before Hillel and he accepted him as a convert. And on the first day, he taught him Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet. He's teaching him the alphabet. The following day, though, he reversed them. Dalet, Gimel, Beit, Aleph. And he said, wait, 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 yesterday, didn't you teach them to me this way? Hillel says, well, must you then not rely upon me? Then rely upon me with respect to the oral Torah too. On another occasion, it happened that a certain non-Jew came before Shammai and said to him, make me a convert on condition that you teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. Thereupon, he repulsed him with the builder's cubit. He's got the rod in his hand, right? Remember, Proverbs said, just take a rod to the fool. So he's got that rod in his hand. When he went before Hillel, he said to him, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That's the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. On another occasion, it happened that a certain non-Jew was passing behind a Beit Midrash when he heard the voice of a teacher uh, reciting from Shemot, from Exodus 28, verse 4. Um, and these are the gar garments which they shall make, a breastplate and an ephod. And this non-Jew thought to himself, wow, that sounds pretty fancy. For whom are these? For the high priest, he was told. And then the non-Jew said to himself, oh, I will go and become a convert so that I may be appointed a high priest. So he went before Shammai and said to him, make me a convert on condition that you appoint me high priest. But he repulsed him with the builder's cubit, which was in his hand. He then went before Hillel, who made him a convert. And he said to him, can any man be made a king, but he who knows the arts of government? Go and study the arts of government. So he went out and he read in the Torah, right? Um, to try to learn how to be a high priest. And when he came to the passage in, in uh, Bamidbar in Numbers, which says, and the stranger, the czar that comes near the sanctuary shall be put to death. He asked Hillel, to whom does this verse apply? Who's considered a czar? Even to David, king of Israel, was the answer. And thereupon the convert reasoned with himself, a fortiori, like Calvachomer, right? Well, if Israel, who are called the sons of the omnipresent, and who in his love for them, he designated them, Israel is my son, my firstborn, and who, um, and yet it is written of them, 
and the stranger that comes near shall be put to death. How much more so a mere convert who comes with his staff and wallet, right? He uses his reasoning. Oh, if even a, an Israelite who's not uh, of the priestly class is struck down if they encroach on, this, on the sacred precincts, how much the more so me. Then he went before Shammai and said to him, am I then eligible to be a high priest? Isn't it written in the Torah, Bamidbar, and the stranger that comes near shall be put to death? You knew that. Why didn't you tell me? He went before Hillel and he said to him, oh, gentle Hillel, blessings rest on your head for bringing me under the wings of the Shekhinah. Sometime later, the three of these new converts get together in one place and they said, Shammai's impatience sought to drive us from the world, but Hillel's gentleness brought us under the wings of the Shekhinah. Each non-Jew makes an impossible demand to be converted on the condition that he learn only the written Torah or only the, and not the oral Torah, or that he learn the entire Torah in the short time that a man can manage to stand on one foot, um, or that he be made a high priest. And what to do? Well, it depends on one's assessment of the fool, but it also depends on one's own capabilities and personality. So let's consider Shammai first. We might construct Shammai's assessment of the situation this way. Each of these men is a fool, ignorant, and maybe even wicked, and in any event, incorrigible. He knows, Shammai knows, that it's a matter of Torah, yes, but Shammai also knows himself. He knows the limits of his own personality, what he is and is not capable of. He just doesn't have the patience for this foolishness. So he doesn't engage them, but he drives them away with a rod. Lest by answering them, he loses his patience and becomes uncivil and foolish like the men questioning him, right? Verse four, don't answer the fool lest you become like him. Shammai knows himself. I can't do this. I don't have the patience. But when each of these non-Jews comes to Hillel, he agrees to the conditions they set. He knows that their demands are foolish and impossible, but he also knows himself. He has patience for this foolishness because he's willing to believe there's a chance that the fool is not incorrigible. And since he sees engagement as a matter of virtue and not a matter of duty, he's prepared to engage on any topic with anyone. And notice how Hillel then meets each man precisely where he is. Okay, the written Torah it is. Sure, on one foot, no problem. So you wanna be a high priest? Sure, just make sure you read the fine print. He meets each one of them right where he is. He validates him and he establishes trust. And then Hillel slowly leads each one to realize his own error on his own, not by rebuking or scolding him, not by lecturing him, but by providing the conditions and information the man needs to see for himself that perhaps his demands were unreasonable and foolish. And this I suggest is what it means to answer the fool according to his folly. Answer the fool, not with the same hostility or mockery or incivility or ignorance or aggression with which he addressed you, but answer the fool in full acceptance of his current limited capacity or understanding according to his folly, his state of mind. Do not hunker down in your superior knowledge so that he feels humiliated or excluded and rejected. That will only drive you further apart and make each of you more entrenched in your positions. Meet the fool right where he is, hear what he has to say, understand his perspective and understand what a person standing right where he is standing would need in order to emerge from his ignorance and his folly. And this is hard to do. And not everyone is in a position to do it all the time. Just as not everyone can write a play or run a four minute mile. We have different temperaments and natures, and some are gifted patient teachers, and some are not. Shammai was incapable of doing this in these specific situations and knew it and didn't try. 
for some reason, these three just pushed his buttons, but maybe with other interlocutors, he would be able to answer effectively and be a patient teacher where Hillel might have a more difficult time. Hillel was capable of engaging in these cases. Fully aware of the deficit in the non-Jews understanding, he doesn't bring that deficit to their attention. Instead, he answers the convert, um, uh, each one, each fool, according to his folly, meaning that he enters his frame of reference and without shaming him, helps him find a way forward. Now, I'm conscious of the time, Shmuley. It's 3.48. I had some other cool things to say and another couple of texts to share. But I, I don't want to shut things down. Um, so, and I want to leave room for some questions. So let me just, um, I won't share the text that I was going to um, share, um, but I just want to answer that the rabbis, um, I, I just wanted to uh, describe uh, one additional aspect of this is that the rabbis are the first to learn their own lesson. Um, and so we do have some wonderful rabbinic texts where the rabbis reflect upon their own tendency to sometimes shame and shun rather than to really try to answer the fool, to humiliate or degrade or even shun someone and disengage and to do so in a way that's destructive. And they're self-critical. I would have um, brought the story um, the second half of the story of the oven of Achnai, a story with which many of you are familiar, I'm sure, in which the rabbis outvote Rabbi Eliezer, even though Rabbi Eliezer's view on a particular legal matter is endorsed by God. Um, God says Rabbi Eliezer's right. The rabbis outvote Rabbi Eliezer. They're not convinced by his arguments. And that's a story that's well known, but it's the second act of that story that is so interesting because not being content with having won this victory, the rabbis go on to shame him. Everything he's ever declared pure, they bring out and they burn. And then they vote to excommunicate him and they shun him and he weeps and his pain is tremendous. God, who was defeated in the previous um, scene, God chuckled when he was defeated and said, well, my children have, have um, conquered me, right? They voted, they conquered me, I've been outvoted. He chuckled at his defeat. He was magnanimous and generous. The rabbis who won are anything but magnanimous and generous. They are sore winners. And in their self-righteousness, they are cruel and vicious, which was not at all the lesson that had been modeled to them by God previously, who was able to accept his own defeat graciously. The rabbis can't even accept their own victory graciously. And they punish um, Rabbi Eliezer. God then punishes Rabbi Gamliel, who has um, decreed the excommunication, and Rabbi Gamliel is struck down dead. It's a very dark and tragic story. Uh, and so that is one way in which the rabbis reflect on how easy it is, even for those who think that they're right or have strong reason to believe that they have done the right thing to be self-righteous and to shame others. Another story that we could look at for this is the rabbinic story of the treatment of Jesus by his teacher. When Jesus makes a comment, and it's, a, and it's an erroneous comment, it's, it um, casts aspersions on his teacher, his pious teacher, and that teacher's offended. But that teacher's response is excessive, 400 shofar blasts to excommunicate and shame Jesus. And Jesus keeps trying to apologize and he refuses to hear it. And as a result, Jesus apostatizes and doesn't return. And the rabbis recognize that it's that, that harshness. Stopping the fool is important. Holding up one hand is important, but also putting out a hand to welcome and to bring back is important. Um, so it's balancing the, the, the stopping of the, of the behavior, but also welcoming it. That's so important. Finally, the last thing I would say is if any of you are familiar with the story of Matthew, um, of, De of um, Derek Black uh, and his uh, friend, Matthew, 
um, then you will know that this is a wonderful example of a modern day Hillel. And I would encourage you to Google um, Derek Black and to learn the story of this um, white nationalist, Holocaust denying neo-Nazi figure who was invited to a Sabbath dinner by a college roommate, Matthew, who over the course of a couple of years, met him where he was and brought him to a very different place uh, and changed his and changed him uh, quite dramatically. So I will take some questions now. And great, again, I'm sorry. Great. Over time. Thanks, Christine. As always, such an amazing presentation. Um, very, very thoughtful. A lot to think about. So friends, uh, time for questions with, prof with Professor Hayes. And um, uh, we, we thank her. She's even offered to extend her time a little bit longer today. So we can take maybe uh, an extra 10 minutes even to be sure that we can do justice to some questions here. So feel free to write in the chat or, unmute, or to unmute yourself now. Yes, hi, Stan Hammerman. Yeah, Professor, my question is, uh, you've described a fool as incorrigible, but then your last story kind of made, made, made it seem like a fool could, be, uh, could, could have teshuva. Right. Uh, I'd like your comment on that. Yeah, absolutely. So when I gave the description at the beginning, I was trying to enter into the book of Proverbs. So I looked at all of the language that the book of Proverbs and Psalms and other passages in the Bible, but especially Proverbs, since that's where our verse is from, how do they see a fool? And it's consistent across the board. They're wicked or they're ignorant, but either way, they're incorrigible. That's Proverbs view, except for that one verse. Answer the fool lest he be wise in his own eyes, you might be able to show him, you might be able to correct him. That's the one verse that gives us some hope or beacon that maybe we shouldn't necessarily think every fool is incorrigible. So the standard view is that they are, but we've got that one verse. And I think it's that verse that the rabbis jump on. Uh, and that opens the door. Don't be so sure they're incorrigible. That doesn't mean they shouldn't be stopped, right? That doesn't mean that sometimes you have to draw a line um, but at the same time, as you put a hand up, perhaps also be putting a hand out to welcome. Yeah. And I put the name, somebody asked in the chat, what was the name of the white supremacist? Uh, again, his name is Derek Black. It is a fascinating story. And he and Matthew actually did, um, uh, NPR did an interview with them. I don't remember the program, but you can hear them talk about this period. And um, yeah, he, you know, he was one of the, his father, he, he was a grandson of David Duke and his father um, was the founder of Stormfront. Uh, and he, as even as a little boy, was known as the devil child. And he wrote the kids section of this white supremacist neo-Nazi. And he had a radio show and the whole thing. Um, and then went to college and, and hid his identity and had friends. And then people found out one day what his identity was. And he was shamed and shunned by the entire community, he moved off campus. But one student, this fellow named Matthew, uh, a Jewish student, thought, but that's not going to change anything. And so he said, what are you doing this Friday night? And he invited him to a Shabbat dinner. And that's how it began. And he came every week. Um, and slowly he made a journey out of that dark world. So I, I have a question. How would you handle uh, the fools right now who are out there believing? Yeah other fools rather than science, what would you say to them? It's really difficult. Um, I'll tell you the truth, I did have an experience like this, if you don't mind me sort of uh, reflecting a little bit more personally on this. Um, I, 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 ha I have a hobby which involves people getting together. <laughs> um, and at the beginning of the 
pandemic, you know, like everybody else and well before the vaccine, we had to make decisions and, and so on. And so we were switching things up to Zoom and I sent a message to five or six of the people for whom I have a certain responsibility to teach and instruct and so on. And, and said, well, how can I help you? And how can we meet by Zoom? And please write back to me. And one person wrote and said, I'd like to discuss this on the phone. I'm not comfortable writing. I said, okay. So we spoke on the phone and she said, this, this, this whole pandemic is a hoax. It's all a plot. It's all part of a, a plot to shut down our places of worship. This, this, um, this particular person was her uh, Christianity was very important to her. And uh, she said in California, they've just closed all the synagogues and churches and mosques. And that's what this is. They're calling it the new normal. They're taking away all our rights and it's all a hoax. And I had not spoken to anybody. I had not, this was before people were even using the words conspiracy theorists about it all. I hadn't spoken to anybody in my circle of people. This was, this was not the standard view. <laughs> um, and uh, I had to take a deep breath because uh, I have a relationship with this person. We were involved in this activity together. And, I, and, I, and that relationship was important. And at that moment, that relationship was um, what was guiding me. So I, I remember thinking to myself, don't respond to her words, respond to her emotion. And so I said, oh, Susie, whatever your name was. Oh, Susie, I, I'm sorry to hear you, you sound very anxious and very worried. I'm sorry to hear you're so concerned and anxious. And that gave her a little bit of breathing space. She said, yes, I am, I'm very, and she started to talk about her anxiety. I said, it must be really scary to feel like you can't go to your church, you know, or really scary to feel like you can't see your grandchildren and got her to talk more and more. And as I met her where she was, then she began to be open and she began to ask me questions and said, well, do you know anyone who's had this? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do. My administrative assistant, her, um, her fiance or her boyfriend um, just died uh, uh, in March um, he, and from COVID. And another friend of mine, her sister, who's in a nursing home did just pass away. And she sort of paused and she said, well, but they were probably sick anyway. It's not dangerous to everyone. <laughs> um, I, I could go on. I spent an hour. It was a full hour. But by just meeting her where she was and only answering the questions she asked um, without trying to give a lecture or to in, have a scientific conversation or anything of that nature, and finally saying, I think it's also just really frightening to look at social media and listen to news. You hear so many different things. And I said, you know, I just kind of go by um, you and I, the group are in, you know, we have many, many of the people in our group are nurses and you know what they've been saying about what work is like lately and those in the emergency room. And she said, that's true. It was interesting, but by the end of the conversation, she had agreed that she would wear a mask when she was with the group. She had agreed that, you know, there were, a, I don't know that I converted her all the way, but we were able to live together and do things together for that period of time. Um, but it took an hour, one-to-one, -one, right? And we're talking about thousands of people and not everybody has an hour for even, and small steps. It's hard, it's hard, but I know what doesn't work, right? I know what doesn't work. Great, so we have a question uh, in the chat from Rabbi David Almug who writes, doesn't social media influence the consequences mm -hmm. of our answers? How might that influence the values we bring to answering the fools? And he continues, or influence the decisions we make when answering fools? Right. Social media ups the ante so far because, first of all, the consequence of the fool's statements can be so much more devastating with, you know, the, with one keystroke, 
a terrible lie that somebody is saying uh, about you or something else can go around the world in a moment. So it can just feel devastating. I will say that as much as that is true, it's also forgotten almost as, as quickly because of the bombardment of so much in social media. Um, so I know that I've been in, in the last couple of years, um, I've actually had you know a sort of a front row seat at a few cases like this, and I've always urged just back off, shut down, get off Facebook, get off. You know? um, and unfortunately, there's been somebody who has sent something around the world, much to someone's great embarrassment. But I will also say that within about three weeks, it was also forgotten and people were on to the next shiny object. <laughs> so there's, there's, it's a mixed, <laughs> it's a mixed thing. Um, it is such a bombardment of, of a shame scape that after a while it all um, starts to lose its punch. It's, it's very, very passing, but it does, you know, up the consequences. People can say things which have far more devastating consequences and can really incite people to, to, to violence and action. Although Fortunately, much of it seems to just be inciting people to keep typing at their keyboard instead of actually getting out and doing things. Um, I think that social media has made it very easy for us to respond with our, um, with the part of our brain, the reptilian part of our brain, which is the fight or flight part of our brain before our prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that assesses whether or not something truly is dangerous and whether we are acting rationally and maybe we should moderate our response before it even has time to get going. We have the ability now to react instantly to something um, and to shame and to shun instead of taking the moment we might need to take to think about why someone is saying something. Maybe I should respond not to their words, but to what's behind the words, the anger, the fear and so on. And that if I do that, and I touch where they're really coming from, they can drop the words and be honest about what's happening and then we can address that. So social media, I think makes that harder, but it also makes it more necessary, right? It makes it much more necessary to intervene and say, this may not be the place to have this conversation. I'm just seeing a lot of anger right now and I'd love to understand what's behind it or I'd love to understand what's behind your words. I'd love to take this offline and have real face time instead of this. I don't know why they call it Facebook. It's, I don't know why they call it. It's interesting. One of the first things you learn in, in uh, rabbinical school, pastoral counseling 101, is don't answer the question, answer the questioner. Mm. Um, you know, when you're getting a, uh, a question of sock, don't just answer, is it kosher or not? You know, find out what's actually going on behind the question, actually. So I hear that. Yes. Hi, Cheryl. Yes. Um, would you consider in, in the Haggadah, there, uh, we, we talk about the four sons or nowadays the yeah. four children. Would any of those be considered fools? Oh, I love that. And I've, in different versions, different contexts, I have, um, I have done that. Uh, I've used that, right? So there they kind of break it apart, right? There's the wicked son, <laughs> right? And then there's the son who doesn't know how to ask. So it's kind of those two versions that Proverbs kind of, you know, gives us the, the fool who's wicked and you kind of stop them. And notice how the response is different. Because the wicked son says, what is this thing that you do, right? Not we do. He says, you do. Like He's already standing outside. What is this thing that you do? Um, and the response kind of, the response that one gives um, responds to that. You've placed yourself outside the community. Those of us in the community, this is what was done for us. But you need to sort of shut that down, make them understand the consequences. You've distanced yourself really you want to be outside this people but the child who doesn't know how to ask you answer in a very very different way you give them the tools to understand and to bring them in right so um so that i the four questions is a great way of showing that 
What's important is assessing the needs of the moment and the situation, thinking about the consequences, thinking about what's a, a good thing to do um, and what will help meet the person right where they are, right? Answer the person according to where they are, according to the type of folly they have, whether it's wickedness, whether it's ignorance, whatever it is, meet them where they are and lead them to a new place. Beautiful. Okay, uh, over, to, over to Eddie Chavez Calderon. Yes, thank you so much for this class. I, I think this is so important to be able to address these, these issues and talk about dialogue. I think it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, I, I really enjoyed when you quoted James Baldwin. And that quote um, fundamentally for me brings up the idea, uh, how do we have conversations when people who deny my existence? Um, I also felt the calling of when you used um, the quote on Mexican-Americans. Um, I find it very difficult as, as a native of, of Michoacan, Mexico, to have open dialogue with people who uh, deny my existence. I have a very hard time with, uh, within my Jewish identity when people deny the existence of the Jewish people. Um, how do you propose we have dialogue for, for those cases? So here's where I would say, there are different roles to be played by different people because it's the community's responsibility. Uh, it is not necessarily up to the targets. You may be feeling the pain, but that means that we should all be feeling the pain because it's a member of the community. And it might be that there's a different role to be played. So the, the burden of education maybe should not fall upon you. <laughs> maybe the burden of um, education should fall upon others in the community or allies who say, you know, I'm seeing that our friend here is feeling a tremendous amount of pain and that hurts me. And I wonder if there would be a way for us to think more openly about Jewish community is much more varied. Have, let's, have a, let's have a series in our synagogue on Jewish identity. Let's have a three-part talk where we think about um, what the Jewish community has looked like since ancient times, when it included all sorts of interesting groups, by the way. Uh, Moses married a Kushite, let's not forget. Okay, so um, maybe that would be a way to go, but that may not be your job to do that, <laughs> right? It, it may be, that's, that's why it takes a, a village, it takes a community. Um, you know, I, I recently saw a saying, you know, the saying, um, it takes a village, um, and I saw a saying which says, so do I call the village or I just wait for them to show up? How does this work? <laughs> so so uh, how it works <laughs> is that we all need to be ready to be a village all the time. We, all, we, you know, we need to be really active bystanders, right? Which sounds like a, a contradiction, but it's not. A bystander is somebody who sees something and then takes action based on that. And so um, that, would, that would be something that I think I would try to bring to the whole community. I don't think that um, necessarily it's up to victims or to targets of hate speech or hate ideologies to somehow have to carry that burden alone. They may be at that moment, they may be feeling like Shammai. Right now, I want to punch this guy in the face. That's understandable. So let's get in somebody who doesn't feel they have to punch him in the face and has the Hillel patience needed for that person. And that may not be you, Eddie, but I'll bet it will be you if it's an issue of, I don't know, pick some other issue, right? You would be the one to have the patience and someone else wouldn't. And I, and I think that's the really important, that's why I love the Hillel and Shammai thing. They didn't just give us Hillel, they gave us Shammai too, to show us that Shammai, another great teacher of Torah, didn't, couldn't do it, didn't have it, couldn't do it, but so maybe I, I, he could. I'm gonna take the privilege of the last question here and, we, and thank you for this extra time. As you know, one of the brachot in the Amidah, one of the blessings in the daily prayer, Vela uh, Malshinim, that we say, God, strike down the heretic. And one of the one of the, the intentions I like there is 
that God, if I'm the one who has truth wrong, so to speak, strike me down, you know, mm-hmm. like, don't, this is not just about the other, it's about myself, like my integrity towards truth is about my own accountability. How, how might, how might we flip this question on the, on the, on this, on the psycho-spiritual dimension where we say, when the fool is within us, as all yeah. of us are foolish, how, how might we ask the question of how we kind of answer our own foolishness? Right. And that's why I, I was sorry that we didn't really get to those last two texts, because I do think that's an important part of it, right, is don't assume that the fool is always out there and it's always about, okay, so now how do I deal with the fool? Right? How, do I identify, how do I identify my inner fool <laughs> and not act self-righteously? And I, and I think that's what those last two stories would have, have helped us think about a little bit. Um, is to understand that at any given moment, you may not know who's the fool and who's the wise. That, um, that is something that's always worked out in conversation. Also, what may be wise at one moment may be foolish at another moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that we don't see. I kind of like that second story where Robin Gamliel is the one who seems like he's saying something really wacky and so the student scoffs at him, but slow down, be patient. Um, what he's really trying to say is this, what he's really trying to say is that. Um, so I think, th- and that's a rabbi, right? So, so I think the rabbis have plenty of stories in which their own self-confidence or overconfidence is critiqued and where a common person or an ordinary person or someone who you might think is foolish, it shows up shown to be more pious than they are. The Talmud is full of stories like this. Uh, and I think these are all ways to get us to practice a certain kind of skepticism towards ourselves. Um, and to say that I'm, I'm doing the best I can and I'm working with what I really feel are important ideas or values, but I'm always open to hearing the other point of view. I'm always open to being told I'm wrong. Famous passage, of course, in Bavi Eruvin, where Hillel and Shammai arguing for three years and each says that the Torah is according to them. And uh, the heavenly voice comes and says, these and these are the words of the living God. They're both right. But more importantly, the voice says, but the halacha follows Beit Hillel. Why? Not because he's right, but because they're kind and pious and they mention the words of Beit Shammai first. They mention the words of their opponent first, meaning they've considered the other point of view. They're willing to realize they might be wrong. They consider the other point of view and they're kind about it and they're pious about it. That's why the halakha is according to them, not because they were smarter or best or right, but because of how they treated other people and treated those who differed from them. And that's Amazing. what we're looking for, right? That self-criticism and that humility. Amazing. Friends, I'll give you a test case to use with a chavruta tonight. Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg is not a fool. Whoopi Goldberg said something foolish. She may have said it in your view, extremely foolish. She may have said something in your view, slightly foolish. Um, and, and now look at the communal response um, and how it's engaged it and in a whole plethora of ways. And how do we as a community respond to moments uh, like this and how we think about this on the communal level? Professor Hayes, thank you so much for this wonderful talk today. And thank you all for joining us and wishing you you a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.